welcome back to the Mock Review. We are fortunate enough to be joined by a mock trial legend today. She is a rising senior at Yale Mock Trial, the one and only Elizabeth Bays. Elizabeth has made quite a name of herself, leading Yale's A-team to a final round just her sophomore year, and this past year she maintained an incredible feat of receiving an award at every tournament she attended, with the exception of this last Nationals. So Elizabeth, we are so glad to finally have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth, we're going to start out with something that we like to do with all of our guests, which is finding out how exactly you came into learning about and doing mock trials. So how did it all start for you? So I come from a pretty small city in uh, northern Indiana. Um, And so at my high school, there were about three extracurriculars that we did. Um, But the extracurriculars that we did, we sort of got intense about because there wasn't a lot else to do. Um, so my, my high school had 16 mock trial teams and a lot of people did mock trial. Um, so I was on one of those mock trial teams and I kind of thought at the beginning that it wasn't going to be really a big deal thing. It was just sort of something I was going to do in high school. Look how wrong I was. Um, I just sort of got addicted and kept doing it. Well, transitioning to once you kind of arrived at Yale in your first year, you're working with... Daniel Stern, Raymond Zhu, uh, what was it like kind of getting to to work with such you know, other mock trial legends? I mean, I, th- I think one thing that we do at Yale Mock is we try really hard to not have the sort of legends of mock trial thing be in the forefront of people's minds. We want to create an environment where everybody can learn and everybody can have a chance to get involved at their own pace and can learn what they're trying to do um, without a lot of pressure. So I think I, 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 I knew that they were really, really big in the mock community. Um, I'd been to nationals the year before just to watch because it was close to home. Um, and so I'd, I'd actually seen the final round where they competed. I was actually sitting in the jury box during that final round. Um, but I don't think it ever really hit me how big of a deal they were until we went to our first tournament. And by that point, we just sort of, we'd all been working together as an association for so long that it didn't hit me with the same force that it might've, if I don't know, I just walked in and people had been like, and this is Yale mock trial legend, Daniel Stern. Elizabeth, first of all, you did gladiator in high school, correct? Yes. Okay. So how did, I mean, obviously you competed in high school at the high, at a fairly high level. Um, and I know obviously Yale independent of mock trial has some reasonably positive qualities about it as an institution, but was there a thought process like, okay, I want to compete at a really high level college mock trial or how was there any connection between high school and you ending up at Yale mock trial specifically? Yeah. So, um, my, my, I don't think my parents knew entirely how I made my college decision until after I made it and they couldn't yell at me about it. Um, (laughs) When I went and watched nationals, um, I had two or three programs in mind as possible schools where I might go. Um, And I watched all of the schools I was thinking about going to. And I picked the one that I liked the mock trial program for the best because that was that was just such a big part of my life. And I'd gotten down to the point where of all the schools I was going to, they were all going to be academically challenging. And so I was looking at, you know, what extracurriculars are going to fit me? And mock trial was a, a big part of that. So, yes, there is a direct correlation. So, Elizabeth, one of the things that I've always wondered is that Yale has managed to go to the national final round for four years in a row. And, you know, it's the team that has made it the last two years. Uh, Many of them were never even part of the program when the first team made it to nationals. Mm -hmm. So what is it that you as a program are doing to continually make it to that high of a level? Is it, is it as simple as you're getting great students or do you think that there are institutional things that you guys are doing that other programs don't? I mean, I I certainly think it's helped that, we've we've gotten lucky and we've had some really phenomenal students join our program over the last couple of years so i don't want to say that oh it's all due to the institutional program that would be that would be doing those students a disservice um but i think the other thing that's really important about our program is that we really put a lot of effort into every student 
um, I know there are programs out there where the strategy seems to be sort of start with one team, put all of your energy into that team for a couple of years, build them until they're juniors and seniors, and they are the best that they can be, and then maybe they'll win nationals and just sort of build all the way towards that. And I think that's that's a, that's a reasonable strategy. Um, I've seen programs do very well with that. On the other hand, it has a tendency to lead to huge drop-offs right after that. Um, so, I mean, to give an example outside of AMPTA, um, when I was in high school, I so I was in this school that had a lot of teams and we were very, very successful. Um, and there was another school that was sort of a rival with us. They were the, the high school in the county, one over from ours. And they decided, we're just going to beat this school. And so they took three years. They put all of their energy into one team of, they were sophomores at the beginning, and built them up through their senior year. They ended up beating us at the state final, which very rarely happened. That school no longer has a program. Um, they Their program fell apart after that. I think they've sent one team even into regionals in the last couple of years. And so one of the things that I think is really important is never being in a situation where we say sort of, this is the A team. These are the people we're going to spend all of our resources on and we're going to ignore all the other teams. Um, and so we structure a large portion of our season around making sure that every individual in our program gets the same kind of attention you'd expect from an A team member. Um, in other programs. And that means that, for example, when you hit nationals in Minneapolis and the A team crashes and burns, the B team is right there to pick up the pieces um, because we put a lot of time and energy into them. And they went in with the assumption, you know, we're a really good team too, and we could also make the national final. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up specifically because that's such a from an outsider's perspective, that's such an interesting dynamic that you and your other members of the A-team, right? Like you've got to be at nationals sort of dealing with this combination of, you know, I don't know, I don't know if frustration is the right word, but just, you know, obviously you wish that things are going differently while at the same time, there's got to be an immense source of pride that, you know, your program's B-team is on this fantastic run to almost winning the national championship. Yeah. I mean, I think in the, the night, of so the Saturday night of nationals, we realized I, that by that point, we knew that our A team wasn't going to make it to the final. We weren't even going to place at that point because we had something like two ballots. Um, and we basically decided, look, this we're just not this judging pool's cup of tea. Um, let's just have fun for the rest of the tournament. Um, and of course, we took it seriously because, you know, you're always told don't take the last round and do something crazy because that could mess up somebody's CS. And we didn't want to do that. Um, but we were just sort of, we were going to go through and have fun, but we were also sitting there thinking, you know, if there, is there anything we can do to help B team? Is there anything we can do that will, you know, increase their chances? Eventually we just decided we shouldn't help because clearly our instincts are just wrong for this judging pool. So we don't, we don't want to go and help them because we might mess them up. Um, but we certainly were very proud, um, that they were in that position and very happy that they were in that position. So Elizabeth, one of the things that Yale's also very well known for is the fact that you are a student-run program. Uh, and I've always been curious of, is there, has there ever been any, anything that you've looked into about getting a coach? Uh, if someone offered to be your coach, would you want them? Or is it kind of a point of pride that you're a student-run program? We have had people offer to be coaches. This is, we're not student-run because we couldn't find coaches. Um, we have turned down offers. Um, to have coaches. It's some of it is a point of pride um, that at this point we're, we're very proud of being one of the few student run programs that does as well as we do. Um, some of it is that, you know, there's a collection of us, myself included, who are very obstinate and don't want grownups telling us what to do. There's some of it that I think for a program like ours, not having coaches can help. Um, it helps to keep things fresh, I think, a little bit because we never have someone who's just sort of been there for a long time and sort of has an idea of how mock trial should work and sticks to that and does mock trial the same way every time. Because we always have new people coming in, new people coming into leadership, new people sort of shaping the program. And I think that helps us create some of the sort of dynamic content that 
we do create. So I think that's very helpful. And I think it's very helpful in that it allows each member of our program to become a mentor in their junior and senior year and to take that leadership and get that experience. So even, you know, beyond just how do we create the best mock trial team that's going to win nationals? How do we, how do we use this as an educational activity? And I think at least within our program, we find that having that autonomy is good as an educational tool in and of itself. Elizabeth, do you think that there are any any guidelines or rules that you guys use that make up for the lack of a coach? Okay, so first off, never use that phrasing. Um, and I, <laughs> I don't mean that as a, as a criticism of you, but I think making up for the lack of a coach is exactly the wrong way to think about it. Um, if you think about it as making up for the lack of a coach, then you have to start thinking about sort of, you know, how is how is a student going to behave the way a coach would? Or how is a board going to behave the way a coach would? And that just doesn't work. Um, so I think, I think the way to think about it is more, here are the goals that every mock trial team has. Here are the things that every mock trial team has to do, whether it's, you know, stacking or running a tournament or fundraising. And instead of thinking, well, all those other teams have coaches, how are we going to get over the hurdle of not having coaches? We just sort of think, okay, here are things we need to do. Here are the resources we have. What are we going to do about it? In terms of sort of guidelines for how to make that work well, a lot of it, I think, is setting up systems where every member of the program can really have a voice. Every member of the program has their opinions heard so that we don't have resentment because, I mean, I think I think resentment and political drama from what I've heard talking to other student-run programs can be the number one problem for student-run programs. So we have to try to head that off very early because there's never going to be an adult who steps in and fixes that. We have to, I think it requires a little bit of, a lot of pre-planning on our part to make sure that we have policies in place for everything. There's never just a sort of, okay, this person is going to make the decision on random abstract criteria. We have to set in place ideals for how everything is going to be done um, so that there can never be an accusation of, oh, the student is taking too much power. So I think that's useful. But beyond that, I think a lot of it is just having students who are willing to put in a lot of work. And along those lines, as you're talking about that, I was just thinking about your tournament. You guys threw a huge 48 team tournament, you know, every year you've been doing it for a very long time. uh, And I've seen lots of student-run programs who run a great tournament for two years and then certain people leave and then all of a sudden it's not a great tournament any longer. So what, I know there's tournament directors and everything like that, but do you all have a set process to sort of make sure that your tournament keeps its, you know, high quality field and high quality approach year after year after year? Um, so a lot of it is clearly going to be up to the tournament directors because they run the tournament. Um, but we do have handbooks for every member of our board. Um, so as the years progress, we learn things, we mess things up. Believe me, there have been tournaments where things have gone disastrously wrong in some category and we've been just desperately hoping nobody notices. Um, and when that happens, we sort of take a step back and try to think, okay, what went wrong? And then we write in the handbook, in this year, this weird thing happened and it caused this problem. Do this to avoid that problem. Um, and we have that with every role on the board. It's not just our tournaments. Um, and at this point, because we've been running it for so long, a lot of our tournaments will run pretty smoothly because we've sort of troubleshooted those things. One thing that you guys encountered this year, Elizabeth, was your B team didn't make it out of regionals. And there are a lot of programs that do program bids where, you know, whatever teams get the bids, they go to the program, and then they send the best teams that they can from there. Um, But being a student-run program, did that make that decision at all different for you guys? Did you have to make a hard decision there, or how did you make it? We have rules set in place in our constitution about what to do in that situation. Um, And that's, that's one example of the places where you just have to have the policies set out in advance, um, because we didn't want to be ever in a situation where okay, we don't have a policy and now we have to make one up in the light of whatever crazy thing has just happened. So our policy is that 
the team that gets the bid goes. Um, we have a bit of a spin on that. Um, the rule is that at every level of the tournament, the team that gets the bid goes, but if there are people on that team who don't want to go, they don't have to. Um, so in this particular case, because it was C team that got the bid, there were going to be people who, you know, weren't really interested in going ahead to orcs. Um, either because they, you know, orcs is during our spring break. So some of them just couldn't go because they already had plane tickets because they didn't think that we were going to be in this situation. Um, and so they were, you know, going home to see their families and couldn't reschedule to go to orcs in the middle of brick. For some people, it was just that they had other things going on in their lives and they'd been on C team specifically because they had those things going on in their lives and they expected to be done in February. So we gave every C team member an option to compete. And it was pretty clear, like, if you want to compete, you can compete. And then eventually sort of five people decided they wanted to compete. And we then said, okay, so five people is not a viable team. Um, you have to have at least six. So we went to the captains of C team and said, you can, you're now B team and you need to pick up at least one extra member from the remaining members of B team. Um, you can pick up as many as five. And they ended up taking five members of B team. And that was at their discretion. Stacking is always at the discretion of the captains. So one of the other things that, uh, is an interesting topic for a lot of teams that are at tournaments, especially with high-level teams, is the concept of scouting. And uh, especially when you know, you're know you Yale and you're a very established program that is notorious for your theories, uh, how much of, of scouting do you guys do you guys think about? Do you guys scout at all? Or do you have any policies in place regarding scouting? In terms of our theories, we always work on we work on the assumption that people are going to scout us. Um, and our theory is that if our, if what we're doing doesn't work, if we have been scouted, then what we are doing is not good enough. Um, clearly there are some things we do that work even better if people haven't scouted us. And so we can sort of catch them off guard, but we never want to be in a position where if you know what we're doing, well, that's the end of it. Cause you can just front everything on your case in chief or something. Um, so we expect to be scouted and it doesn't really bother us when we get scouted unless the scouts are beha badly behaved. I will say if you are a scout who comes into a round and is disruptive or you are a scout who comes into a round and makes noise or does whatever you're doing in a way that makes the trial harder to do, you are a bad person and we don't like you. Um, but <laughs> apart from that, it doesn't really bother us. And I've always been, and I, I don't know if this is a, sentiment that's shared by my entire program. Um, but I have always been pretty pro scouting. I think it's a policy that should be allowed because I think it's exactly the type of policy that allows newer, younger teams to learn things. Um, I think if we cut scouting, we're going to end up in a situation where only programs that have connections and lots of teams and can run a ton of invites are going to do well anymore. And I think that's bad. Um, in terms of whether we scout, the answer is no. Um, mostly because we do not have the resources to scout most of our teams. So with the exception of that, um, the B team that ended up making the final in 2018, most of our teams are seven to eight people. Um, and so we need all of our people in the room to compete and to timekeep. And then sometimes there's one extra person, but they're usually sitting in the back taking notes. Um, I mean, I, I can actually remember in 2017 when we realized, oh my goodness, we actually might make the final. Um, we ended up sending my family, um, to go scout the other division because there was no one else who could do it. And so I sent my, at that time, 12 year old little sister to go watch Harvard and write down everything they did <laughs> because that was what we had. She did a good job. <laughs> so Elizabeth, one of the things that has become very famous in mock trial was the 2016 nationals round where your team played uh uva's a team and uh the popular theme that we heard in that round was they've got the wrong student they're telling the wrong story um i know that as someone that reviewed the that round many times it it stuck with me and it was a phenomenal theme and it was one that when 
uh, a lot of teams read this year's nationals case. They went, oh my goodness, you know, I can use that. And I'm curious of, you know, what is Yale's policy around, you know, we've come up with this great theme you know, do we ever want to use it again? I, I know that Columbia is notorious for their close enough isn't good enough theme. Um, would you guys ever consider reusing a theme? In general, we don't. That's not an official policy. I don't think, I mean, it's, it's certainly not written down everywhere that, you know, thou shalt not ever reuse a theme. But we don't generally reuse material, mostly because we try to tailor our material to the case that we're actually working with. And so our general feeling is if we're just reusing something we did in a different case, then we could try harder. We could come up with something better. We could come up with something that's more specific to this case. And that's not saying that we'll throw out good rhetoric. I certainly have little rhetorical rhetorical flourishes that I will reuse from time to time. But in terms of something as big as a theme, we think that if we can come up with something new, it will probably be better and more specific to what we're doing right then and there. Um, the other thing is that at this point, we're aware that some of our best material is online um, and really accessible. And we would much rather do something that not everybody has a, had a chance to watch dozens of times and think about, well, how would I counter that? And think about what would I do if I were facing Yale from 2016? Um, so better to do something that people aren't necessarily expecting, or even if they've scouted us, they've had less time to think about it. And I probably thought about it a little less carefully. Well, speaking of sort of that notorious creativity and getting to, I think one of the more interesting subjects that's related to Yale is obviously Yale, as Drew mentioned earlier, you all are very well known for creative theories and, and, you know, sometimes that there are, you know, what some could argue varying degrees of factual inventions, things of that nature. And so I'm curious, you know, we, we don't have to get into any specifics of who thinks what, but obviously you all, I imagine are aware that sometimes that's what people associate with your program. So where do you come down on that? And, you know, what's your approach, especially now that, uh, not that there's a correlation here, but that AMTA is starting to say, okay, you know, we're going to look a little bit closer at things like improper invention. Where, where do you fall on that sort of uh, spectrum of things? So I'll say I have, I have two pretty big opinions here. Um, the first is that I don't think what we're doing is actually improper invention. Um, and to be clear, I'm not saying that it's, you know, improper invention, but oh, it's not egregious enough to be sanctionable, so leave us alone. I'm saying that I think a lot of what we do that people perceive as improper invention isn't actually invention at all. Um, I think it actually falls under the reasonable inference rule. Um, one of the things that we have a tendency to do as a program is take an affidavit, look at all of the facts in that affidavit, and pretend that we believe for a moment that all of them are true. And that insofar as they don't contradict the facts in that affidavit, all of the facts in the documents that that witness is available or can, can see are also true. And once you take all of those facts, we start asking ourselves, what is necessarily true based on all of these facts? What can, is probably true? What must be true? What can we conclude? What can we reasonably conclude? And I think that's reasonable inference. But one of the things that means is that often the line we say in our script, it won't be something where you can say, okay, here's the line that the witness said on the stand. And here is, you know, in line 87 of the affidavit, here is the specific line where the witness says basically a paraphrase of that. Often in order to get to the thing that the witness said in their script or what they said on the stand, if it's not scripted, is, you know, there's a line in line four and there's a line in line 82 and there's a line in line 107 and there's another line off in one of the documents. And when you take them all together and you look at the conclusion, the only reasonable inference is X. 
and the witness said X on the stand. And I get where, in many cases, what we're doing often looks like we're just coming up with a fact out of the blue, um, because, you know, often we're taking seven, eight facts, putting them together over three weeks and spending hours and hours thinking about, okay, what's probably true based on that? And then cherry picking the bits of what's probably true that are good for us. And in order to figure out what we were doing, you'd have to reverse engineer several weeks of work in three hours while guessing what we're thinking. And that's impossible for most people. Um, I think it's impossible for anyone who's not, I don't know, superhuman and reading my mind. And so that's going to look a lot like we're just coming up with facts, um, even when we're not. And then I think the other thing that doesn't really help is that often when we're coming up with something that has eight different facts contributing to one reasonable inference, that's not something you can say when the other team decides to impeach you. You know, if, if the witness gets on the stand and says, well, actually, I did say it in the affidavit. If you look at the line, line four and line 82 and line 106 and this other line in this other document that I mentioned in line 142, you'll see that the only reasonable conclusion is that's not what a witness sounds like. That would break character. Um, and you'd also never be able to get through that full explanation without the cross-examining attorney cutting you off and saying, but ma'am, do you actually specifically say this? Um, and so we'll end up saying something different on the stand. We'll say something along the lines of, well, here's this line that doesn't quite fit, but we're going to pretend it does. Or here's, you know, we're going to say, I didn't really know that that was relevant. I didn't put that in. And we're, we're going to say all sorts of stuff on the stand that may not be our justification for why this follows the improper invention rule, but it's what the witness would say if they were in that position. And so I think there's been this, there's been this feeling in the APTA community that, oh, Yale just makes stuff up. And I can see where that comes from, but it's not what's actually happening. Um, and I'll also say, I'm, I'm really sorry if, you know, there's some team out there that thought, oh, Yale has just been making stuff up and they got away with it in the finals, so I can do it too. And then they got sanctioned. If that happened to you, let me say on the record, I'm really, really sorry. And that's, that's you know, not what was happening for us, but I can see where you would have thought that. Um, and I can certainly see where people in the community would, would think that and maybe would be a little angry with us. Welcome back to the Mock Review. We're still joined by Elizabeth Bays, although in all candor, this portion of the conversation is being recorded a few weeks after we first chatted with Elizabeth, and she's been gracious enough to come back and chat with us some more on a few specific issues that we think the community at large will, will find interesting. And I, I want to start with um, Elizabeth. Uh, as you know, uh, I had the opportunity over the last uh, few weeks since our last conversation to go back and listen to you know the exchanges that we had specifically on the topic of invention effect. I thought your explanation and your answers on that were really, really candid and really interesting. So I really appreciate that. My one follow-up question is, I think you and I, I don't think you guys are doing anything wrong. I think you and I take a little bit of a different philosophy on this in that I sometimes wonder, you know, when you talk about like, you know, there are two things in the case file and maybe they're not necessarily tied together by, you know, by specific language or they're several pages apart. Uh, and you all sometimes will use that to draw them together. Sometimes I wonder in this type of activity, if two things maybe aren't on their face, seemingly written to be put together, if it's not reasonable to put them together, if maybe there's some gray area there where they're not meant to be together, but it's not against the rules to put them together. It feels like you guys kind of exist in that gray area sometimes. And please correct me if you disagree. But I, I think my question uh, to sort of end this this rambling diatribe is, how do you feel about um, where you all exist on that spectrum and whether or not you feel like uh, your approach is both within the rules and also sort of within the spirit of our activity? Um, 
So I would not say that I think it's a serious gray area. I think, well, well, first of all, I'll say I find it very difficult sometimes to tell exactly what the case authors are intending for us to argue. Um, Because often they put things in the case that seem like they're little Easter eggs as the hidden in the case um, for us to find. And sometimes there are just details in there that, you know, we find out later we're just in there as random details that somebody put in and didn't intend to have any significance. And we end up making them significant. Um, So I find it very difficult to tell which is which. Um, And to the extent that we're just finding things in the case that the case authors didn't intend for us to find, I don't really see an issue in that. Um, because there's no real way for us to tell whether they intended for us to find it or not. Um, there's no sort of list of facts that they have in there as these are the facts that we intend for you to find. Um, in regard to whether we're sort of piecing things together that shouldn't be pieced together, I think the goal of this activity in many ways is to simulate what would happen in a real trial. And I know there are differences. But in a real trial, you're often given lots of little pieces of information, hundreds of documents, affidavits that may or may not be complete because the investigator who created the affidavit may or may not have asked all of the right questions at the right time, may have had to you know, come back a week later and ask more questions when they found out something was relevant, may have left something out and then gone and talked to another witness and found out that fact. Um, And so the job of an attorney in that case is to sort of peek up, pick up those little details um, and create a world out of them and then ask questions about that world and have the witness testify to what really happened. And so I think if there are things in the case that fit together and create part of that world and that world is relevant to us, then it's totally fine for us to put that in our direct. Elizabeth, we also wanted to discuss with you your thoughts for AMTA as a whole. Uh, as you, many people will know, Yale is well known for being a champion of student-run organizations, and you have nobody in your program that's associated with the board or AMTA. Uh, so just to kind of spark a discussion between all three of us, we kind of wanted to talk about what your thoughts were on AMTA's transparency and their availability to student-run programs that don't necessarily have someone that's within the know? Um, I should start by saying that I have never, when I have reached out to AMTA, had difficulty finding someone on the board who's willing to talk to me, explain things to me, um, listen to anything I have to say, I am a serial emailer of the board um, and will send them very, very, very long emails uh, when I have opinions and I've had good luck with getting them to listen to me. Um, I think the biggest place where student-run programs, even programs like mine, have a tendency to sort of fall behind is with regards to information. Um, We have at a couple of points, been in situations where we needed some sort of information about how the board was functioning and didn't have it and didn't really have a way to get it. And I don't think that that happens as often to a program with somebody on the board, not because anybody's being biased or corrupt or anything, but just because they're more in the know. Um, So, you know, to give an example, At some point, and I'm not going to go into the details on this, um, a team tried to have us sectioned. Um, You can probably guess for what. And we went into that process with no idea how the sanction review process works. I mean, we had what is in the AMTA rulebook, which basically says, we will review the situation and get back to you. And if you don't like it, maybe you can appeal. Um, and so we had no idea what the time frame was going to be. We had no idea what the standard of proof was going to be, what information they needed from us, what information they were going to get from the other team, 
what was going on. And we reached out to them. And basically what we were told was that because you're in the middle of a review process, there isn't that much we can say to you. We're just not allowed to talk to you that much about this because you're under review. And I think that's totally fair. I don't blame the board members who told us we can't talk to you right now. But it does raise an issue that there's no real way for student-run programs to get information like that in the moment. Whereas if you were in a program that, say, has a coach on the board, you would just know. You would know what to do in that kind of situation, and we don't. Um, and I don't think that's the only situation. If you, if you go on perjuries, there are all sorts of places where students have said this process, whatever this process is, is a pretty mysterious process. Um, you know, maybe it's how teams are assigned to regionals. Maybe it's exactly what goes on in some of the board meetings that we just don't see. Um, and they sound confused as to what's going on. And there's no official publication telling them what's going on. And that's just not a problem that programs with coaches on the board are going to have. But it is a problem that can affect teams, both in terms of sort of the psychology going into the round, do we have a fair shot, um, and in terms of their ability to navigate the system. So I think there are some places where it's not a lack of transparency, but that AMTA could be doing more to make sure that the information that students might need is available. Yeah, I really agree. As someone that also comes from a student-run program with nobody on the board, it is an obstacle that we faced a lot. And I think that the thing that's tough for me about this issue is that I think that AMTA is actually really, really good about responding to people, about being open and working with new programs. And similarly, I've emailed with and discussed a lot of different issues with many members of the board, and they've always been extremely receptive to me. But I think that in my mind, a lot of the issue is that you know, Elizabeth, you're someone that's prominent enough in mock trial that if you send an email to a board member, you feel good about getting a response. I have done enough on perjuries and have met enough people through that that I'm I'm glad we have that form and I've been able to reach out to AMTA members through that. But I feel like for a lot of people that either aren't on perjuries or aren't a ridiculously successful mock trial person to the point that everyone knows their name, it's a little intimidating to just email this person out of the blue. And it's not necessarily that their email won't get answered, but they may just feel a little bit uncertain about the com their comfortability doing that, the perception that's going to have. And I know that- It may result in they're just not sending the email in the first place. Exactly. And that that's my concern is that it's not necessarily AMTA's the, how receptive they are to those emails, it's that people are nervous about sending them in the first place. And AMTA becomes this kind of, not scary, but this mysterious amalgam of people that are, you know, making these decisions that you don't know a lot about. And uh, I, it's hard to break through that comfortability. And it, I don't know what they can really do to change it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's definitely an issue. I will say that as of three years ago, um, freshman Elizabeth had things she wanted to say to AMTA that she did not say. Um, because, I mean, because at that point I was not someone whose name I was sure would be recognized. I knew only one or two people in AMTA. And so I didn't really feel comfortable reaching out, even though I was from a program that was well known. And it was, it was only two years ago, the summer after we'd been in a national final where I was basically like, okay, at this point I have the right to reach out. And even then I had people on my board telling me, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you're not going to face repercussions? And I think that's a bit scary, especially because there are definitely programs who would be even more apprehensive than mine was. I mean, I've talked to people who said, who've said basically that they would never ever reach out to a board member. It, you know, no all that's really interesting. And I don't, I don't necessarily think all of that's wrong. And yeah, we're a coached program, but I mean, I've only been out of college mock trial for, or for law school mock trial for a couple of years now and college mock trial for a few years after, before that. And I think a lot of it just has to do with, I'm going to use the word ignorance, but I don't mean ignorance in like a willful way. I just mean that, you know, I, I've obviously only been to one board meeting, but having been to one board meeting, I think that, just that experience makes me realize 
okay, these are just a bunch of people, you know, like I, not to use a pejorative, but it's just kind of a giant gathering of nerds who just like (laughs) all like this ridiculous activity. And so I think, well, yes, we can all probably be accused of taking it too seriously at times. I would love to see a way for AMTA to break down that barrier a little bit and say, look, we're just, for the most part, people who started doing this the way you did. We started doing it as competitors in high school or college. We thought it was fun. We stuck with it. We've been coaching now. Now we've you know raised our way up onto the board, and we're still coaching many of us. And that path is, I mean, that's part of the reason we like to ask people their origin stories, you know, is basically, I mean, we just last time talked to Mike Elfin, who wrote this case, who was the primary author of our most recent case. And he started doing this just the way that, that we did. And I really do think there are ways that... AMTA can break down those concerns a little bit so that people don't feel afraid to walk up to the front door and knock. Yeah. And I think, I think I I would say that I am very grateful to the couple of board members who have taken their time in recent months, both to be on this podcast and to sort of show that by telling their origin stories or even just being on the podcast and letting people hear, okay, this is not a mysterious person. This is an actual real person who is willing to talk to students on an open podcast um, or who've gone on perjuries and done AMAs or, you know, have just been available. Um, I think the issue is that there are still a lot of board members who aren't necessarily as available for whatever reason. And I'm not really blaming them for that. You know, I understand they have real lives. Many of them have jobs that are probably more important than letting students badger them with questions. Um, but I do think that that's meant that there is still this degree of mysteriousness. Um, And I think there are some things, so I mean, just off the top of my head, AMTA could, for instance, when they're having somebody go on perjuries and do an AMA that, you know, the case authors have done a couple of times, Jonathan Woodward does it as tab director, would be to say in an AMTA tweet, for instance, hey, this is happening. If you have questions, go to perjuries. So that it's not just us normal perjuries nerds who've been on perjuries a lot. I've been lurking on perjuries since I was in high school. Um, It's everyone who has a chance to answer, ask those questions um, and listen to what those people have to say. If they're going to have somebody go on the podcast, I thought it was a great step that they actually, I think AMTA actually tweeted that um, that a couple of the board members were going to be on this podcast. And I think that's a good idea. Um, so I just, I think a lot of it is that when AMTA board members make themselves available, it should be public that these people are available. When they're open to having emails, they should put a note on their website that they are open to receiving emails. Again, a good step that AMTA has taken recently was that instead of just creating this sort of new tournament committee that I know they're creating and saying, oh, well, students can reach out. They actually put a note in the case this year that said, if you have comments on this, reach out to Justin Bernstein. I thought that was great. I think they can do that for more um, more specific issues that they think students might be involved in. I think they could start creating FAQs because there's, there's got to be a situation where a bunch of students are asking the same questions. Um, just students face the same issues, so they must have a lot of the same questions. Um, and they could start putting some of those questions on the website. I think there are a lot of little things they could do that would make things a lot more open. Um, I don't you know, something that's been mentioned on perjuries. I think there's got to be a way of making what happens at the board meetings more public. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because, Elizabeth, the thing about the board meetings being more public, they are public. You know, anyone can go and, and listen in. I think that realistically people flying to them is not really going to happen. But I very much so agree with a lot of what you just said. I think that as much as we can on other forms of social media being, you know, being encouraging and letting people know about what, what information is out there and how they can reach out to people is great. And people that have done it, you know, my hat is off to all of them. I think they're doing great work and I really appreciate it. And it's not to say that those that haven't, you're doing anything wrong. It's, it's understandable. And I think that it's also to be noted that all of these people are volunteering their time to do it. I think that 
whenever anyone posts an AMA of, hey, ask me whatever you want and I will respond to it as timely as I can, they're not getting paid to do any of that. You know, They're going to be getting probably a, a lot of questions that they don't have all the time in the world to just be answering all of them and they're doing it anyway because they value it. And that I can't say enough how much I appreciate. As far as the board meeting itself, I'm actually, this is going to come as a shock to a lot of people, I'm sure, but I'm actually surprised that it is public only from the perspective of like, I'm glad that it is, but I'm surprised because I feel like there's a lot of things that have to get discussed that there's no reason for for people to be privy to, frankly. I think that posting the minutes is good, but things like the financial situation of AMTA, I personally don't see a reason that that needs to be publicized. Um, you know, obviously no one's getting paid, so it, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't need to be like all hush-hush, but like to me, like what, what what's really, what's really the need for someone to go in and sit in on, on how much money is being pulled in, how much money needs to be divvied out to different things. I, I just don't really think there's a huge need for that. But I do think that encouraging more feedback on the minutes would be really helpful in that I think that the best example I can give is that the uh, the moving of the invitational fees one, that's the one to me that I really think AMTA needed to talk to people before they did that. And like, I don't know who they reached out to. It may be that they did reach out to a lot of people, but I just feel like when you're affecting teams' finances in a way that they can't possibly have predicted beforehand, there needed to be some way to let people know before they came to that decision of like, hey, like, heads up, we're thinking about this plan ahead. Because I know that for our tournament, I know that for Yale's tournament, I know for UMBC's tournament, all of us had already sent out our invites, we'd already set out our prices. And I, to me, it's a little odd to be changing finances up on teams. Obviously, it didn't affect either of you guys since you host regionals, so more power to you. But to a lot of teams, it really affects their finances. And I think that whenever we're doing something that is going to actively affect teams, we need to do a little more of a flagging, whether it's on the minutes or whether it is in a tweet or some other social media. Hey, heads up, this is happening. If you have thoughts on it, please let us know so that we can address them. So, I, Drew, I agree with a lot of what you just said, but I think, and I, I certainly think there are things that the board does that not everyone needs to be aware of. Um, I'd agree that things that have to do with board financials or, you know, there were things in the minutes about the board wanting to get diversity training. I don't think that students really need a lot of input in that. Um, and I don't think it's a big deal if that goes private. What I think my concern is, is that there are a lot of things that the board says, well, the board meeting is public. If you want to give input, come to the board meeting. And not everybody can go to the board meeting. So it's fine to say, okay, the board meeting is not public. Here's a different way of giving input. We're going to make an, an active effort to reach out to a bunch of programs before the board meeting so that people can fight their corner before the board meeting. But to say the board meeting is public, that's when the primary discussion is going to happen and then have the only way to even know what's happening at the board meeting be to fly to the board meeting is a little bit of a problem. And then we get into issues where, you know, the mid-year meeting isn't public. Um, it's a Skype call. And last I checked, nobody who's not on the board is allowed on that Skype call. And I suspect they don't want to change that because if they did we would be in a situation where, you know, hundreds of people would be on the same Skype call and the Skype call would probably crash. But then they started, they started in recent years making big decisions at the mid-year. So this year, clearly near and dear to my heart, they're revising the improper invention rules at the mid-year meeting. And that means that I can't send someone from my program to argue at the mid-year meeting that my vision of improper invention should be upheld. I can send them an email beforehand and say, hey, here's what I think. But if there are clarifications that need to be made or somebody raises a counterpoint that could be rebutted, there's nothing we can do because that's happening at a very private meeting and we don't even know what they say at that meeting. 
And I think that's where the sort of disadvantage of not having anybody who can be on the board comes in, is that at those private moments, we don't know and we can't have input. Elizabeth, one thing that you were alluding to that I think is a really interesting point is the fact that all of this kind of comes from reading the minutes. And when you're looking at the board meeting minutes, there's some people that read them regularly and look at them the second they come out. And there are probably a number of people that didn't know minutes existed, don't ever read them, don't come anything close to it. And the problem to me is that when the only real way of finding out about these pretty prominent changes within this activity is by seeing, oh, minutes are posted, let me read through it. And I have enough of an understanding of how to read through it that I can figure it out. I think that if people read perjuries, they're fortunate enough that they can find there was a post that kind of parsed through a lot of the minutes that broke them down well. But for people that don't read perjuries, that don't look at the minutes, they're still affected by something like the invitational fee change. Things like that still are going to affect them if there's a rule change to uh, during the mid-year minutes, as you said, Elizabeth, to invention of fact that still affects them. And I just worry that a lot of teams don't know that those changes are happening. They don't need the minutes. And I don't necessarily think that we should be expecting every program to have someone that reads through the minutes and does that regularly. The reality is that a lot of people just don't. And I think that while we should encourage people to do that more and to get more involved in the community, I still think that there needs to be some way... um, for AMTA to be a little bit better about reaching out to everyone and saying, hey, alert, this is happening. Maybe it's sending an email and just letting people know. I know that they put it in the case, but as far as when people get, if you want to get feedback from people, I think it'd be awesome if you sent an email, if AMTA sent an email to all of the, the contacts for each program and said, hey, heads up, these are things that could be affecting you. If you have any thoughts, we'd love for you to email us back and let us know. I think that's a really easy way for a lot of teams to immediately find out about this. I think they're more likely to respond when they get an email written to them. I know that it would be really difficult on Amtizen to do something like that, but particularly for teams with the imitational fees, that's the one that I really come back to. I really think that they should have emailed teams, at least the ones that hosted imitationals last year, and said, hey, heads up, this is something we're thinking about changing. If you want to change, to adapt to it be aware this is going to come up in the minutes and this is going to come up in the meeting. Um, and I think it would end up engaging a lot more people overall. Yeah, I have lower, I guess I have lower sympathy for teams who don't read the minutes at all because the minutes are publicly available on the website and AMTA does tweet about them. I think it would be great if AMTA could do something where they you know, sent out the agenda to all the programs or boiled it down so that all the programs knew, okay, these are the specific issues that affect you. But I think that's not something I think they have any obligation to do, given that they tweet that the minutes are up. Um, I do think, however, that they do have more of an obligation to make it clear that students can reach out uh, if they have problems with the agenda. Um, You know, as was brought up on perjuries, they don't actually say in the announcement of the agenda that you're supposed to reach out. Um, So I think even just saying, hey, you could reach out to us if you have concerns um, would be a good step in the right direction. And I I have concerns about things like raising from $4 to $6 in the meeting without any notification. Um, So there was was the point where they said in the agenda, okay, we're going to raise the invitational fee from $4 to $6. And teams at that point had a right to you know, reach out and say, $4 is going to be a big problem for us. But if there's a team out there that knew, okay, we can make it $4, but $6 is too much. And here's why no one had a a chance to reach out to them about that. And people had very little notification. So that's where I start to get a little bit of an issue where they make changes like that. Um, And then they just don't reach out about it. I, t- I totally agree. The only thing that I would push back on is that I think that we should have some sympathy towards teams that don't read the minutes. Um, just coming from a program that until very recently didn't read the minutes, didn't you know really follow a lot of what's going on and changing in, in AMTA. I know when we hosted a, uh, our invitational the very first time, 
there was no one in our program that read minutes. Um, I learned a lot from having to be the tab director of that tournament and reading the tab manual for the first time and discovering a lot of things that we didn't know before. And, you know, we were a team that had been to Orcs the year before that. So I, I really think that there are a lot of programs that whether they're young, whether they just don't follow a lot of this stuff, I don't necessarily think that, I think people don't realize how important the minutes are. I think that people don't really recognize, oh, wait, this affected me a lot until it's too late. And that's why I think that at least when it's a change as prominent as this, I do think that they need to do something more than just including it in the minutes because people just may not know that they were supposed to have looked at the minutes, that the minutes could affect them in that way. Well, and look, I I think I go a little bit further, not directly on that subject, but going back to something you guys were saying a moment ago. I think I go a little bit further when it comes to the board meeting, which is that there is absolutely no reason that the board meeting should not be live streamed and recorded and distributed to AMTA as a whole. It is a public meeting. If you say something that you do not want the AMTA community as a whole to hear you say, you should not say it in a board meeting. And I know that having had people tell me that board meetings in past years have gotten contentious and that people have gotten into fairly strenuous discussions about things. That's fine. That's what we do. That is why this organization exists. And I do not understand the hesitation to distribute that to the public. Elizabeth, I did not know. I I, I was always under the impression that the mid-year meeting is public. If it is not public, I'm, I'm going to ask to be on that call because there's absolutely no reason. You're right. If they're going to make a decision about invention of fact, of course, people, it, conference software has been around for a very long time. Unless you're the current White House, you, everyone understands how to run a conference call. Like there's no reason that they can't bring people in to those things. Uh, and and what you guys were just saying, I I'm always a little bit surprised at the lack of M to wide distribution of information. There was that newsletter for like a day and a half, and then that has just sort of fallen by the wayside. And I don't know how many people read it, but it seemed like something along the right vein of of transparency. And look, the my last thought is there are some things that. AMTA does really well in this particular area that that are important to recognize. Back when we talked to Justin Bernstein, he mentioned the law school mock trial world and transparency, and I could do an entire episode on the horror stories of law school mock trial transparency because there is none. There's people who've been running tournaments for 30 years who don't give a you-know-what about whether or not their system is fair or not and don't care if they decide who gets to the final four based on a coin flip that happens in a back room and it happens to be their team that prevails. Not that I'm speaking about anything specific, but um, I, so AMTA in a lot of ways with the, the system with which they use, I think has a lot of good things, a lot of things like the, the open tab rooms and the open tabulation manual and the fact that tab stuff is distributed really quickly. But all of that aside, I do really think that there are ways that they can connect to the public as a whole that could do a better job of bringing in some of these programs that you guys were talking about that maybe wouldn't ordinarily read the minutes and making sure they know, hey, here's the core information that you need to know to be an active and successful participant. So yeah, I agree. And I think once they've got the information, there needs to be a more official way for them to give input. Um, You mentioned things that had fallen by the wayside. I think one of the big things that's fallen by the wayside in the last few years is the Student Advisory Council. And I thought that was a great thing to have. I was really excited when they announced it, um, you know, sitting and listening to them announcing it from way back in high school and thinking, wow, this is something I could do one day. For a student-run program, knowing that there is a way that students like you can be involved in making those decisions, can be giving feedback. And I don't, I don't know, honestly, what the student advisory council was and wasn't allowed to do because there was never really a report as to what they were doing. But assuming that they had some right to give feedback, I think that's a really important thing. And then it just vanished one year. We just didn't hear anything about it ever again. And I'm still waiting to hear what happened to it. So I think it would be good if that was resurrected. And that's a great question. And it actually almost perfectly segues to what was going to be sort of my next and final question for both of you guys, which is there's a lot of times a discussion on perjuries about like students actually being able to, you know, be members of the board or maybe, you know, reviving that in some capacity would make sense. So where do you guys fall on 
this notion that people suggest sometimes of actually having students, I don't know what role, but have a like an active participant role on AMTA's board of directors. Yes. Sorry. Just had to say it. Yes, I would do it. I don't know whether or not we should, but if it was available, I would definitely be on the board and I would have been in Vegas. Well, I think one thing to keep in mind with regard to having students on the board is that you probably wouldn't actually be able to get students as voting members of the board. Um, Not because I think there would be necessarily a big problem with having students as voting members of the board, but because there's the candidacy window. Um, There's the two-year candidacy where you sort of have the responsibilities of a board member and expected to participate in board-related functions, um, but don't necessarily get a vote. Um, And so assuming that it would take a year or two for a student to build up the kind of participation resume that they would need to be accepted onto the board, by the time they built up that resume, let's say in their freshman and sophomore year, and then applied to be on the board that summer, spent two years as a candidate, they wouldn't actually be voting members until the year after their senior year. But there would still be that two-year period where they're candidate members of the board, they can participate, they can be on committees, they can come to board meetings and talk and have an official role and have input. And I think that would be quite good. Well, Elizabeth, we can't thank you enough for coming on and taking the time to sit down with us. So thank you again so much for coming on. No problem. And thank you for having me.